umgoblue.com by fans for fans since 1999 hello welcome to the umgoblue.com podcast this is phil callahan along with drew montag and we have a very special feature drew montag basketball editor from umgoblue.com is joining us to talk about the 20th anniversary of his coverage of Michigan basketball. Drew, how did we meet? <laughs> we met back in late 99 um, when you came over to borrow a tape that I had of a U of M football game. And as you were returning it and we talked a little bit, I mentioned I go to all the basketball games. You said, hey, how about writing an article? So I did, starting with the Chattanooga game on December 4th. 99. And back then I used to write an article after each game. And since some games are more interesting than others, I kind of started batching them together into a week starting on Mondays. And uh, that seems to work out better. But uh, no, that's how we met was uh, exchanging a football tape. Well, Drew, and I want to congratulate you. Looking at many of the other sites, I think we've established that you have covered basketball consistently for the last 20 years and I think you have the longest streak that we know of other than uh, some of the people who officially work for the university so congratulations that is quite a streak Um, one of the things you talked about in your article in that over 20 years you'd posted over 456 articles 22 per season so you've been remarkably consistent I really appreciate it. I know that uh, the fan base appreciates it. So, uh, again, it it is interesting because, you know, we go way back to when Internet coverage began. And one of the things that started uh, umgobel.com is we're in our 20th year, is that I had been writing uh, about football probably for four or five years before that. I was posting articles on my own under my own domain name. So, oh, uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I was writing articles during the 97 season. And what I remember about that is I came back from the pen. I, I didn't really realize how many people were following until I came back from the Michigan Penn State game and drove straight through the night to get back to Ann Arbor and woke up uh, midday or so and had a couple hundred emails of people complaining that I hadn't posted my game grades <laughs> yet. And, yeah. and so that's kind of how the site started and um, went out and picked up a, a batch of domain names, including umgoblue.com. And I know you picked up some domain names at the time. And uh, that's kind of how the, the site is, has come together. So, Drew... How did you first start? How did you first become a Michigan basketball fan? Because I know you've been a fan for a lot longer than even you've been writing for the site. Well, like a lot of U of M fans, I, my first love was U of M football, and I followed them when I was in high school. I didn't particularly follow U of M basketball when I was in high school. I went to high school locally. I went to Bloomfield Hills Andover, um, so it wasn't hard to find U of M sports coverage. But I really was more of a football fan than a basketball fan for U of M sports. Um, in high school, though, I was on the football and basketball teams as a trainer. And I, I couldn't play football, but I could play basketball enough to practice with the team and scrimmage with the team. So 
I like basketball better than football, but U of M football certainly is a bigger deal. So when I came to Michigan as a freshman in 74, a while ago, um, I got football tickets, of course, and then I just naturally assumed everybody that I saw at football was going to go get basketball tickets. Well, I went to my first basketball game and realized that wasn't true, that there were uh, maybe a 1,000 students there, maybe, instead of, you know, 20,000 at football. I thought everybody would get basketball tickets, but I went to all the basketball games. I started going as a freshman. Um, I've only missed maybe a dozen U of M home basketball games since 74. Um, usually, a couple times it's been because I've been out at a bowl game. I go out to the Rose Bowl if we ever get there again. Um, and I've been to probably all but one or two since we started writing and I started writing the articles 20 years ago. So I, I like basketball better than football and uh, at least as a spectator. And that's how I got into U of M basketball. I came here, I came here for the school. I liked football and then I found basketball and I liked that even better. So you have seen the program go up and down and up and down. And I have to give you credit, Drew, because um, you know, you started writing uh, for UM Go Blue during the Brian Ellerby phase. <laughs> and that was definitely, I think it's safe to say and, and fair to say that the team was definitely wandering through the wilderness there for a while. So you've been incredibly consistent, you know, whether the program is good, whether the program is struggling. And you've also talked about, you know, when the program had some issues off of the, off of the court. So mm-hmm. it, it's definitely been been a wild ride. So um, speaking, you know, flashing forward to where we are now, you have Coach Howard coming back. What was it like to follow the program when the Fab Five was here? And, I mean, I know uh, you were out of school for a while when that happened, but that was right when I was at U of M, so I can add a little bit to that. But what was it like to follow the program um, during the Fab Five era for somebody who'd been following the program for a while before those guys came in? It, it sure looked like we were going to continue the success from 89. And getting to the national championship game a couple times was nice. Turns out later that they're not going to count those games, but still, at the time, it was real exciting. It looked like Michigan was up there, was going to stay up there, and it was... Real interesting seeing a team that was kind of coached on the floor by Jalen Rose as much as was coached on the sideline by Fisher. It was uh, interesting. (laughs) Um, It was funny watching how they go out there and kind of toy around with a team that they should be putting away. And, you know, six minutes left in the game and it's tied or they're down two points or something. And you'd see them all of a sudden go, well, I guess it's time to start really playing to stop horsing around. And they just, you know, blow them away the last six minutes. So it was certainly interesting basketball. Um, I I wish those games had ended up counting. It's a shame that they all got wiped out Um, because we definitely, we we earned those wins. It's just that there were (laughs) technical problems. Well, and it's interesting because um, I went to, again, I was in school during that time. 
And it's I remember it exactly as you do. You'd go to a game, and the team would kind of lollygag around for a half or so, and then would just pour it on and, and, and blow people out. And, yep. of course, there were some games they weren't able to come all the way back, but it was a definite pattern. I, I think the thing that I recall um, being a student at that time was not only – did Michigan have a huge impact on the court, but it's hard to explain to fans now how big of an impact off the court that team had. And oh, definitely. And I remember um, I went down with a with a roommate of mine to visit his girlfriend uh, at a summer internship down in uh, in Virginia, right down in Norfolk, Virginia, and walking around a mall. And seeing kids wearing, you know, the long shorts, the Michigan shirts. And, of course, you know, we're wearing, we are wearing Michigan gear because we went to Michigan. And having just teenagers walk up and, 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 and slap you five and say, go blue. And, and it really, uh, you, you realize how much of a phenomenon it was. That, yep. you know, yep. in Ann Arbor you it always see that. Yeah, exactly. In Ann Arbor you see that. But when you would go out of state, you would see that 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 Michigan, the brand, and and especially the the um, the bravado of the Fab Five definitely made a big impact. And I think you're right; it definitely was a cultural thing, um, and uh, it it you know it continues to reverberate. But it really was a, a huge thing uh, on the national stage back then, and and of course, you know. I remember going to the national championship two years in a row and, and coming up short, but man, that, that team was fun to watch. It was, you know, being on campus, you would see the guys walking around and, um, you know, I, I have, it, it's easy for me to say, you know, my favorite player at the time was Juwan Howard. So huh? it's, uh-huh. inter- it's interesting to see him back here as a coach. Um, you know, the other thing that was interesting at the time is, um, I would say, and I would say that there was definitely a faction in the alumni base that didn't appreciate Jalen Rose, and I think I'm being polite in, in saying, you know, the way he carried himself. Right. And and what's interesting to me is that um, he's really distinguished himself in his post uh, U of M and his post pro career. You know, he's he's a commentator for ESPN. He's founded a school, and it's interesting to me that one of the guys who has kind of vilified for being from the street really has has done pretty well by himself and by his community. So, uh, you know, I, I want to you know, you know, cite him for that and and give him props. So, um, so yeah, so it's interesting. And then of course, you know, as you said, there were some technical problems that <laughs> came back and and caused a lot of those games to be wiped out and really kind of put the program in the basement for a while, which I think comes up to, uh, you know, we're coming up to right around the time where, you know, Brian Ellerby was there and, and you started covering the team. Now, what I remember about that era was one of the first stories that UM Go Blue ever broke was I had heard from somebody who heard, who heard from somebody that Lavelle Blanchard, who was a local uh, high school kid here in Ann Arbor was going to commit to Michigan. And I remember that's one of the first articles I ever posted that, that actually got, 
you know, at the time went viral before we said went viral, right? Yeah. And, and that started kind of bringing some attention to, to some of the articles that were wrote. So, so what was it like to cover the Brian, the Brian Ellerby phase after how exciting the program had been with the Fab Five? Well, definitely a step down from the Fab Five era. Um, he, he didn't really recruit. I, there was a time when Michigan would come in second on all the big names that, that uh, Preter and Fisher would chase all the big names, all the, you know, the, the top one, two, three players in the country. And Michigan would always be mentioned in the top two or three for them. And then they'd pick Kentucky, they'd pick Duke, they'd pick somewhere else. And so we kind of ended up with a lot of teams with guys that really weren't our first choice. Well, LRB, I don't even remember him going after big guys that he was, he was aiming more for the three and four stars, mostly three stars. And he had some good players. I mean, Jamal Crawford would have been a great player at Michigan. Instead, he was a great player in the NBA. Um, and Lavelle Blanchard, Lavelle Blanchard was a good player. Um, he got a few others, but for the most part, recruiting's kind of the lifeblood, especially in basketball, of the program. And Ellerby really wasn't he, – he didn't have a name. He didn't uh, – he didn't have enough pull to get the big guns that we needed. So it was, it was a step down when Ellerby was coaching here. But what he did that they liked was he ran the program clean. And that's also true for Amaker and certainly true for Beeline. And I think it's going to continue with Howard that, that that's the top priority is getting a coach that's going to do things the right way and hopefully do things the right way and also get the right players and coach them up good and get them to win some games. Well, it's, it's funny, Drew, because there was a point where post Fab Five, and again, not to, to beat a dead horse, there was a whole bunch of technical things that came out. But I remember being so disgusted with basketball for a while that my goal for Michigan basketball was win a few games, stay in trouble off the court. That's all I wanted. And yeah. that was the one thing that, that Ellerby did. You know, it, it's interesting. I remember the whole Jamal Crawford saga. And what was interesting about that is that not only kind of dented the basketball program, but it actually led to the dismissal of athletic director Tom Goss, if you remember, that there was a, a big game and – Crawford wasn't playing, and during the broadcast, they announced uh, the issues that he was having with the NCAA, and Tom Goss was with some influential alumni, and that's uh, how he found out, and that led to him him eventually leaving. So, huh, I didn't and, know that. and again, definitely a, a sad story. You know, again, Jamal Crawford had a really, you know, was was really a decent NBA player, and and again forced out due to some, I would say, some unreasonableness on the behalf of oh, the yeah. NCAA. But, oh, absolutely. And, and again, you know, it's one of the things they say about the NCAA, no common sense at all. So considering yeah. considering the, 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 the technical difficulties that the program had been through previously, I think that he kind of got um, – Michigan was under extra scrutiny, and I yeah. think he paid an unfortunate <laughs> price, and the program paid a price. 
Yep, you're right. So I've mentioned in, in my articles every year that I'm an usher, that I've been working now as an usher for 14 years in Chrysler and for men's basketball. And I got to tell you an inside story from ushering. Um, and actually, it isn't too much of an inside story, but it's something you may not look at. But next time you're at a game in person, take a look at the tunnel. The tunnel was it was and still is a really big point of emphasis at U of M since the whole Eddie Martin thing. Because he did his work down there. He, he kind of set up shop in the tunnel and was just waving people in and out and, you know, so now the security in the tunnel, I mean, I think it's harder to get to, to do anything in the tunnel than it is to get at the president of the United States or something. It's just, it's incredible how sensitive that still is 25 years later now, more than that, um, that if you're, if you're not an usher, you may not notice it. But even when I go down there, you know, with my credentials and all dressed up and that they treat me like I'm there to ruin the program or something. So the, uh, the tunnel is a real source of um, concern. It's a real tender subject. So take, take a look at that the next time you go to a game in person. Just watch how they treat everybody who gets near. the. And when I say the tunnel, I mean the old North Tunnel, um, not the, the new – and actually the new Blavin Tunnel for the U of M team is also real well secured, but that doesn't have the history that the Eddie Martin thing did in the old North tunnel. So after Brian Ellerby came the Tommy Amaker era, let me say that right. Tommy Amaker. And uh, what I remember about Tommy Amaker is he was a really nice guy. Yep. And probably should have been coaching in the Ivy. And that's where he ended up. So yep. the, the thing about that I remember about Amaker is, you know, he was here for six seasons is that they were always just one player or a player and a half away. Like they just sure. couldn't get over the hump. And again, a, a good guy. I, I, you know, he, I think he represented the program well, but I kind of thought we were always kind of stuck. Um, and, and again, couldn't get over. And it's interesting because, you know, one of the problems that I saw that really became evident during this, you know, during the Amaker phase was just how rough Chrysler was for basketball. And mm-hmm. I think that not only does, you know, the basketball at that time, did the basketball coach have to recruit against other programs, but he also had to recruit against the facility they were stuck in. Yeah. And one of the stories that I remember was, um, I arranged for a, a VIP to get a tour of um, Michigan Stadium. And uh, as part of the tour, we walked through Chrysler. And we were walking through Chrysler. And uh, the guy who we arranged the tour for looked down and said, oh, is this the practice arena? And <laughs> and he didn't. And nobody responded. And he goes, man, this place is a dump. You got to practice. You got to find someplace nicer to practice. And, and you just you kind of just had to swallow it because, you know, this was a guy who, um, you know, had been, was a big basketball fan, had been to a lot of other arenas and he couldn't believe this was, you know, where our varsity played. And, uh, it, it was interesting because, um, 
I think when you're at some place all the time, you you really don't see it for what it is. You know, you you just get used to it. And right. and and I'll tell you, like in a football context, I remember before, way 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 before the renovation started at Michigan Stadium. You know, there used to be kind of a a junky chain link fence around the around the perimeter. And yep. uh, I remember um, standing next to some Notre Dame fans and, and them saying, man, this place is a dump. And I thought, oh, wow, you're just you're just saying that because you don't like Michigan. And then I went to Notre Dame and I was like, oh, wow, yeah, we can start upgrading, right? And mm-hmm. football was definitely upgraded. But at the time, basketball was really rough. And definitely um, Tommy Amaker was, was working against not only recruiting against you know, the academic standards that Michigan holds its players to, but definitely the facility has needed a major upgrade, um, which which I kind of think bleeds into the John Beeline era, right? Um, exactly. I think that what was nice about when John Beeline came in was that, again, he, was, he ran a remarkably clean program. Everyone understood that the, that the facilities were deficient, and I think that gave him a little extra time to succeed. Is that how you uh, is that how you perceived it uh, watching the program up close? Yes, he he didn't. Uh, he certainly didn't start out with a championship or anything. Um, it took a couple seasons to get things going the right direction, um, and then you're right. <clears throat> Once the uh, the facilities were upgraded. Um, recruiting went even better. And uh, eventually, I mean, the team he put out there in 2013 in, in the national championship game, those guys were good. And, you know, <laughs> there, there were a lot of good players on that team, and there were a lot of good players on the, you know, 2018 Final Four team. So he, he definitely upgraded the recruiting. Although the thing that he did the best, that I liked the best about him, was he'd find the, um, hidden gems in the recruiting classes that he'd get players that weren't as pursued as some of the, you know, the, the five star, you know, someplace like Kentucky getting five new five stars every year. We got one five star. We got Mitch McGarry. Um, and we got a bunch of high four stars kind of mixed in there, but a lot of the players that worked out to be really good, like Trey Burke, was not that highly regarded, didn't have that many offers. Um, and Beeline recognized the talent and then coached them up and taught them. I mean, this, some of it was recognizing unrecognized talent, but some of it was also player development. And he was good at both those things. He was good at, at game coaching. He was real good at practice coaching. So and those are the things you're looking for in a head coach. You want him to recruit well. Um, coach him up real well in practice and then run the game well when it's actually going. And he was good at all those phases. So, But player development was definitely one of his strong suits. And he showed it with a lot of players like Karis LeVert was another one who came in kind of lightly regarded and went out as somebody now who's doing well in the NBA. So one of the things that I liked about beelines teams too and and you know as the internet has picked up um so has the ability for 
certain segments of the fan base to criticize coaches, right? You hear from every corner. And one of the consistent things I, I and I'm laughing, I heard about John Beeline is, you know, we, we kind of would go through this pattern, right? Where the team would struggle early in the year and people would be like, see, Beeline's the wrong guy. And then he would, as you said, beat those hidden pieces into gems, right? Yep. And they would they would fit into the system, and then by the end of the year, they'd be competing for a Big Ten championship or winning a Big Ten championship yep. and doing well in the tournament. And, and I'll tell you, the thing that was really nice was my expectation for the basketball program was, you know, in his 12 years, I assumed they'd be clean. I didn't even have to question it, right? Right. And I would assume that they would be competing for a Big Ten championship, either in the tournament or the regular season, and that they would make the tournament and win a few games. And, boy, I'll tell you, for a a player, for a a guy to come in like John Beeline and do what he did here, um, again, my hat's off. And, uh, you know, another one of the things that happened when he was here is that Chrysler was upgraded. And I will tell you, Drew, when they uh, told us that they were going to upgrade Chrysler rather than tear it down, my plan for upgrading Chrysler was, uh, and remember that they were doing a fair amount of construction on the football stadium at the same time, my plan for upgrading Chrysler Arena was to take out a big um, insurance policy on it and knock a few cranes over on it because <laughs> I, I genuinely didn't see how they were going to um, renovate it in such a way that they have. And I, I have to, you know, give credit. It is, it is amazing. I know being an usher that you've seen, you know, uh, behind the scenes, the way things have been upgraded, but man, the, the practice facilities that they've added, um, the, it, it's really a, a showpiece not only for basketball, but for the entire campus. And again, it, it is really genuinely an amazing facility. Um, so it, it's nice to see that, um, you know, the upgrade was was done right. And 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 as John Beeline decided to um, take his shot at the NBA, Juwan Howard comes in, and I think that he uh, has no complaints about about the facility and can just focus on the recruiting. So so what's it like to see a guy like Juwan Howard, who used to be a player, come back as a coach? What I've enjoyed the most about watching him coach so far is how positive he's been. And also, he's he's been, I want to say, unflappable. That when things have gone poorly, he hasn't you know thrown his hands up and sat on the bench and sulked or gone out and yelled at the ref like some other shorter coach from Michigan that I'm not going to mention. And he's he's kept his cool. I've seen one time when he's gotten mad and he walked down to the end of the bench and got himself a drink from the cooler and kind of stood there fuming for a minute and then went back and was back to being positive and under control. So I kind of like that. Beeline also, I mean, Beeline got, what, two technicals in 12 years at Michigan. Um, So I think we're going to see the same sort of thing out of Jawan Howard, that he's a... He's seen this stuff before. He hasn't been a head coach, but he's been an assistant coach. He's seen a lot of basketball games 
since he was in the NBA and they've got a lot more games. Um, he's played in a lot of games. I've liked his temperament on the, on the bench. I've liked the stories that have come out of practice about how the team really does seem to be close, more like a family than a team. Um, I saw it down in the Bahamas when I was down there. Um, the team, in any combination you could mention, hung together. That there didn't seem to be little clicks or anything. That any given time you'd see any two or three players walking around together, going from one part of the hotel to the other. Um, and they all seemed to enjoy hanging around with each other. It wasn't any sort of, oh, I only want to hang around with him sort of thing. Um, I did figure out which ones were quieter, which ones like to go out and, and, you know, hang out with a bunch of guys and which ones just kind of wanted to walk around and look at the, at the cool resort. Um, but yeah, I think Juwan's done a good job with the culture side of things, with the, uh, the teamwork, the chemistry side of things. Um, and I don't have any real complaints. I haven't looked at anything so far and said, I don't like the way he's coaching on the bench, his X and O's, you know, I, I don't like this offense. I wish he'd run that offense or you know, I don't think his defense is so hot or anything like that. So far his coaching has been fine. His recruiting has been great. Um, we'll see if Isaiah Todd actually comes next year. Uh, but, uh, his recruiting has been great. And, uh, We'll see how he does with player development. You got to wait till the end of the season, but so far he seems to be developing the big guys better than we did. Maybe when Bakari Alexander was here with Beeline, but uh, since Jawan's a, a big guy, since he's a center, he seems to know how to handle the centers real well, and we've gotten a lot more play out of the centers. I guess I'd say. I mean. It used to be, I don't want to get too technical here, back in the Amaker era and a little bit in the Ellerby era, the uh, offense was post-touch ball reversal. Get the ball into the post and then reverse the ball and either get it back to the, to the center again for another post-touch to see if they could do something with it. But it all flowed through the center. And with D-line, it all flowed around the edge in the perimeter. And the center was often standing out at, you know, we had five out a lot of times where we'd have all five players out beyond the three point range to draw out. There's nobody in the, in the key. Um, the, the opposing center would be standing out there 18 feet away from the basket trying to guard Mo Wagner. <laughs> Good luck. Um, but, uh, now we've got Jawan and we're, we're actually seeing post moves, get the ball to Teske and let him try and back somebody down do a drop step, put the ball in. Um, and it's a different kind of basketball. Beelines was real perimeter-oriented, and I think we're seeing a lot more interior basketball, um, which I'm all in favor of. I like big guys. I like the centers. So it's nice having a center that can do both, like Mo Wagner could. Um, Teske tries his threes every now and then. And he makes them every now and then, but he's really, he's not the outside threat or the put the ball behind his back and go to the hoop like Wagner did. But he's still, he can play some outside, but he's really more of an inside banger type of guy. But anyway, to get back to what you asked, yes, I like how Juwan's been doing things. So, Drew, for the 20 years you've been covering the team, yep. who is 
and I want to differentiate who have been the best players and not necessarily your favorite. We'll get to that in a second. Who would you say were the best players that you've seen over the last 20 years? Well, you know, a lot of them were either in that 2013 or the 2018 national championship games. Um, GR3, Glenn Robinson III, one of the names that pops to mind right away. Trey Burke, I thought, was a fabulous player. I wish he'd do better in the pros. Um, I love Mo Wagner. I, I liked his energy. I liked his skill set. I mean, having a guy who's almost seven foot tall that's got moves like a point guard, is he, he was slow for a point guard, but he could. He had all the 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 ball handling and the you know dribbling behind his back and shake and bake kind of moves and the three point shot. Um, I liked him a lot. <laughs> Duncan Robinson has done better in the pros than he did, except for a real brief period at Michigan. Um, he did well at Michigan, but he kind of leveled off and even sunk a little bit um, after his first year and now in the pros he's you know he'll pop in 30 points every now and then um and then the other you know if you're going to come up with a like a starting five the other guy that i'd mention would be karis lavert who i've mentioned before who had a good michigan career would have been better if he hadn't kept breaking his foot but he was still he was kind of the prototypical big guard that you're seeing now a lot of places. I mean, having a six, 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 seven guy with, with guard skills is really nice. Trey Burke was more of a, you know, six, one, six, two, six foot kind of guard. Um, but you know, Duncan Robinson listed as a forward, but he, he played guard more than anything. Um, so those are kind of who I think of as probably the five best players in the 20 years I've been covering writing the articles. Um, so Mo Wagner, GR3, Duncan Robinson, Trey Burke, and Karis LeVert. So those are the best, but I know from covering football, there are guys who may not necessarily have the best skills, but they sometimes they have the best heart or they come up you know, the best in big games. Who are some of your favorite players that you've enjoyed watching? Well, one of the ones I enjoyed the most was Brent Petway, who – kind of was a, a track star athlete sort of guy who could play basketball. I mean, he didn't have a great shot. He had a good shot, um, but he wasn't a three-point threat or anything like that. But athletic ability just pouring out of his body, and he was a fun guy to watch. He smiled. He played with enthusiasm. He played When he was out there, the game was fun. And uh, <laughs> when they gave him a chance to – use his athletic ability. I mean, he'd be playing up there with his elbows over the rim, which is just insane. Um, one of the things that the ushers get to see that the general public doesn't get to see is the team comes out there and practices before they open the doors. And then when they're practicing, they're wearing their practice stuff. They're not in the game uniforms and all that. Um, and they'll try all kinds of wild stuff. Um, and by the way, this year I've seen, um, who, which one was it? Um, um, Rico Harrison Azuna throw in two half quarters as he's leaving the court. He just underhand scoops the ball from half court and swishes it. Um, but uh, 
Brent Petway would go out there and try some amazing dunks. And I say try because he missed them as often as he made them. But he had this cartwheel dunk that he'd do where he'd do a cartwheel, throw it off the board, and as he came out of the cartwheel, the ball would be where he wanted it, and he'd jam it through. And it's not anything he could ever do in the game, but it was fun watching him do that. So, um, I mean, a lot of the players that I really liked are – they're good players. They're players that – you know, I sit, mentioned Mo Wagner. I liked him a lot. I also liked other big guys. I liked Graham Brown. Um, he was kind of – Michigan's had a couple times when they've had to use somebody who is really a power forward as center, that they've been kind of the best option. And it's not a matter of, hey, let's go small. It's like, hey, the best guy we got who's tall happens to be a power forward. We can kind of convert him to a center. He was probably a center in high school, but at the college level, playing someplace like Kentucky or Duke, he'd be a power forward with some other guy. Um, Chris Young was another one like that who was kind of playing out of position. That He was a high school center, but when he came here, he really should have been a power forward. But he's he played center and did the best he could. Um, Zach Novak was another guy who – Instead of being a guard, they had him playing power forward. So um, I liked him a lot. He he was another energy guy. It was fun when he came in the game. And there were times when he'd get the team fired up more than anything the coach could do. He was like another little coach out there on the court for him. So um, GR3 was another. He was almost as athletic as Petway, but much more of a basketball player. Um, and um uh, trying to think who else is I like Trey Burke a lot. I already mentioned that. Jordan Morgan um was one of the few I've I've been thinking about this for a while too. Red shirting. He was one of the few redshirt success stories that Michigan's had. That uh all the other times we've redshirted, we redshirt somebody, they got another year of eligibility and they go play somewhere as a grad transfer or they go to the NBA. So he was somebody that we actually finally got a productive fifth year out of. Um, but he was fun to play, watch play. Um, he wasn't flashy. He wasn't exuberant out there, but he played, he played solid. He played, he was steady. He was a great influence on the rest of the team. He just liked it when he was out there. So those are, those are some of my favorite players. So what are your favorite memories from being at Chrysler Arena? And again, you have a different perspective because, you know, again, you've uh, been there as an usher. And as you said, you've only missed maybe one or two games over the last 20 years. So if you had, uh, um, what, what would you mention as some of your favorite times, best, best memories being at Chrysler Arena watching Michigan basketball? Well, anytime we beat Michigan State, um, especially in Chrysler, is fun. And certainly my favorite was when we trounced them by like almost 30 points. I guess it was 29 points back in 2017. That was that was fun. The whole game, it was fun because the game just was not in doubt. Um, we played a couple big-time opponents in Chrysler. Um, 
we played Duke when they were ranked number four and we beat them. And that was an amazing game. Back when UConn, Connecticut was good. Um, they were number 15. And they came here and we beat them. That was a good one. Um, <laughs> I guess anytime we beat a ranked team at home is, is a big memory for the home games. Um, a lot of the, I'm going to count going down to Atlantis because I thought that was a fun tournament to go to. Um, it was fun to see it in person and uh, also get to, you know, talk. I, I ended up talking to pretty much all the players on the team at one point or another. If nothing else, just say hi to them. Um, so, yeah, as far as home games, though, definitely the, the 2017 Michigan State game. Um, those wins over Duke and UConn. Um, I guess those are probably my favorite memories that I've seen in person. And then a lot of stuff going down to the 2013 final four, I went down with my son and then 2018, I went down to San Antonio with my wife. So there've been a few, few away games I've been to. And a lot of the other stuff I've seen on TV, like, you know, Trey Burke's um, big basket against Kansas. Um, so I'd say those are probably the, my favorite memories. Jordan Poole's buzzer beater a couple of years ago in the tournament. That was fun. So, Drew, uh, kind of to close this up, how has the student section changed over the last 20 years? Certainly more organized. Um, that's that's a positive and a negative. That they They've gotten their act together as far as kind of organized traditions, um, things that they, that they have organized as, as a group. Um, it's, I guess it's bigger. Um, there were a couple of years there, especially after national championship games where the next year, the student section would be really big. And as an usher, I get to see that standing there watching them fill in because I'm opposite. I'm on the other side. So I watched the bleachers fill up and then section 136 fill up and going up into the, or no, 130, and then going up into the upper deck, getting that filled up. Um, it would be nice if they were more consistent, if if they could get a full house of students for every game. I think it would be better if they could get more of the students down in the lower bowl, but I understand the economic side of having the the big rollers, the people with more money, buying the uh, the mid court seats um, in the in the lower sections. It just for energy wise, would be great if we could get students get all the students are going to be there down low, and the, instead of having half of them or more up in the upper deck. But the, the student section, they help. I mean, you, you can really feel a difference. The holiday games, when they're out of town, either for spring break or over the Christmas vacation, you can really feel the difference when there's you know, a couple hundred students instead of a couple thousand. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition, this very special edition of the UM goblue.com podcast this is phil callahan along with 
Drew Montag. Go Blue. Go Blue. Thank you for listening to the UMGoBlue.com podcast. All rights reserved. Search for UMGoBlue.com on iTunes. Go Blue.